drops on roses and whiskers on kittens, bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens, brown paper packages tied up with strings. These are a few of my favorite things. Cream-colored ponies and crisp apple strudels, doorbells and That was awesome. <laughs> Thank you, Alicia and Joel and Olivia, the star of the show. Oh, that's great. What do you do with your favorite things, huh? What do you do with your favorite things? When the dog bites, when the bee stings, when you're feeling sad, you simply remember your favorite things. Then you don't feel so sad. I don't know what your favorite things are. I know some of my favorite things include some of the people who are closest to me, and as I was thinking about my favorite things, I realized I have little bags for my favorite things, and so here they are. I have, I have a bag for people. There are some people who go in my bag of favorite things, and you know, they would be, of course, my family, and you, met, or you saw my wife up here earlier, and you know, some of my closer friends. I'll put a couple people in my bag of you know, favorite people that I have. These are some of my favorite things. I also have some favorite things that are... Quite honestly, they're my stuff. There's some things that I like that I just have. I like that I have an iPhone and not an Android, for example, right? Like, I have stuff that I just like, and it's my favorite things, and I have things in my stuff bag. I would put in here, and I might put in my hobbies bag. I don't know which one to put it in, but I'd put my bike in there, right? I enjoy biking and getting out in nature, and I enjoy biking with people. Um, and I also enjoy biking with people for a cause. That has meant a lot to me. And so I have some hobbies that I do and some stuff that I have to do those hobbies with. But I have a favorite things baggie that's including some hobbies. If I'm honest, I think I also have a favorite things baggie that has some accomplishments in it too. That, you know, we have, uh, you know, some things that I've done over the years, places I've graduated from, uh, teams that I've been on or, you know, stuff that I've written or, you know, talks that I've given or whatever. And you look back and you think, you know, there's some things that I would look back and like, that was kind of cool. I'm glad I could be a part of that. And you probably have your own bags, right, of your favorite things, if we could ask you. I don't know if it's, you know, um, raindrops on roses or whiskers on kittens or bikes on the road and time with your friends or going to the beach for some strange reason. People enjoy doing that, you know, whatever works for you. But... Everybody has our little bags of our favorite things that we have, whether it's people, stuff, hobbies, or accomplishments. 
But here's a question that I have, and that is this. Would you say, and could, could you argue, that for all of the things that we do and all the ways that we pursue our favorite things, are we actually happier as a world because of all the things that we have been pursuing? Could you argue that as a society, even just in North America, that we're happier now than we were 30 years ago or 50 years ago in our country? Could you argue that with increased wealth, and there has been increased wealth in our country, even in the last generation, that there has been increased happiness that has come along with it? That as we tend to compound our favorite things in our bags and in the world that we live, that we've actually grown more satisfied as a people. It's hard to make that correlation, isn't it? It is. It's a difficult way to see the world, but it is true. No one is arguing that we're actually happier as a society. We just simply aren't. You know, as we've had the opportunity to connect with these, uh, with so many of you in our connect group at 9 o'clock on Sunday mornings, uh, adults are sharing their stories. One of the things that I've come to the conclusion of is that we are far less content and far less satisfied than we like to let on. That right underneath the surface of the question that you might ask me today, and I probably ask some of you, as I run by you and you run by me, you say, hey, how you doing? I'm like, hey, I'm doing well, how you doing? That right underneath that I'm doing well, I'm doing fine, is actually a whole boatload of pain and hurt and past grief that we're trying to all figure out how to handle. Now, short of being an Eeyore, I'm not interested in just putting a wet blanket on all of our lives. I have recognized that we're far less content and far less satisfied than we are willing to let on. We're afraid of admitting that we may not actually have found or find the happiness or the satisfaction that our favorite things seem to promise. And so when the dog does bite, and when the bee does sting, and when you lose your loved one and your career tanks, what do you do is simply remembering your favorite things enough to actually get you through. In the series that we're in called Big Questions That Shape Our World, I argue that we all ask the question of how do I actually find happiness? What will make me satisfied? And I've come to the conclusion that there's a couple different ways to answer that question. In the world that our children are growing up in and we're growing up in, there's a world in which says, that says this, a world without God or a secular world will say this is a world of evidence. The world of Christianity or other religions even will say that there's a world of faith. And our world seems to be divided to think that people in major world religions are faith-based and people in a um, secular or atheistic worldview are evidence-based. I've tried to make the, the point in this little series that both Christianity and secularism are belief systems. The question is which is the most robust and reasonable. That, that both secularism and Christianity are belief systems. Which one can handle the big questions of your life the best? And today, I want to tackle the question of what will really make you satisfied? Where will you really find happiness? And I want to consider from both sides, from a secular viewpoint and a Christian viewpoint, an answer to the question, how do you find your favorite things? <laughs> what are those favorite things for you, and how does it actually work? And so I want to invite you to turn with me to a, a section in what we call the Old Testament in our Bible, um, to the to the book of Ecclesiastes. If you don't own a Bible, there's one in the Bible in the pew near you. In Ecclesiastes, if you kind of hit the middle of your Bible, you'll find Psalms, and then right after Psalms, you'll find the Proverbs, and then right after that, you'll find this book that's hard to pronounce, but is Ecclesiastes. And in Ecclesiastes, the author there writes about a whole number of things, and honestly, sometimes it's depressing. To be honest, sometimes you have to be careful how you read that so you're not too taken back by it. But it's also very honest, and I find it very helpful. And 
And the author of Ecclesiastes is going to kind of open up, our, um, open up the conversation here this morning. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, I'm reading from the New International Version. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, beginning at verse 4. Here's what he writes about his favorite things, about the work that he had done and some of the best things that he had done. He said this, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well, the delights of the heart of man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me, and all this my wisdom stayed with me. Verse 10. I denied myself nothing that my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labor. And yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done, and what I had toiled to achieve. Everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Isn't that sad? <laughs> Research backs up this problem. According to Jonathan Haidt's book, The Happiness Hypotheses, studies have shown a very weak correlation between wealth and contentment. In fact, the more prosperous a society grows, the greater the degree of depression that goes with it. And here's why. The ancients will tell us this, that when you try to find your happiness in your successes, once you achieve those successes, you will realize how hollow those successes actually were. So the ancients had an approach to how to handle satisfaction. And here was their approach. Ancients sought satisfaction through detachment. Here's what they did. They said, you know, because of this problem that we read about in Ecclesiastes, when you get to the top of the mountain, when you win the Super Bowl and go to Disney World, when you become the CEO of the company, when you finally have children, when you finally get married, when you finally get to the point where you think, when I get there, I will have achieved success. When I finally look skinnier, I have better looking hair, someone loves me for who I am, then I will get to that point where, mm-hmm, I will have it. And it is out there in the future somewhere. For anyone who has achieved any measure of success, isn't this the hollow truth? That the achievement of success, when we try to find happiness from it, we realize how empty it actually is. The ancients said the better thing for you to do, because people and stuff, and hobbies, and accomplishments will all fade away. Because they will all, all of them, will actually end up bringing you pain, sure, momentary pleasure, but they will all, every one of them, bring you pain. You will no longer be able to do your hobby later on in your life. You'll no longer be able to keep your stuff when you have to move to a smaller place. Your health will impact your ability to accomplish things, and people will betray or leave you, or you will do that to them. That everything that is a favorite thing of yours will ultimately bring you pain. And if you try to find too much pleasure in it, your whole life will be 
upset. And so it is better to leave them over there and detach. In fact, this is the teaching of the Buddhist world. Get control of your desire for pain and pleasure. Manage your emotions and find freedom in being free from the need to find both pleasure or excitement or, or even feel pain in this. And this, by the way, it's ironic that sometimes some of us are functioning Buddhists. Some of us are functioning Buddhists. We've lost the heart. We've lost even the desire to, to, to care sometimes about the people around us or the hobbies or the accomplishments of do, doing anything. We've, we've pulled aside because we know this is true. I don't know about you, but when I, I feel like I am the most susceptible to discouragement. I'm the most susceptible to temptation. I'm the most susceptible to failure right after a success. Right after something goes really well. Part of it is because I realize I've looked at that thing to be my happiness, to be a success, to be a source of satisfaction, and it is hollow. I think, is this all there is? And this is what the author of Ecclesiastes is saying. I built all of these things. I had all this money and all this wealth. At the end of it, I look at it and I think, what's the point? So it's better to detach. And this is how the ancients thought. And by the way, this is also a stream that runs through part of our Lancaster County heritage. To detach, to pull back, to be afraid to engage or unable or unsure of how to engage emotionally in some of the people and things that we have in our world. It just is a part of our world. Now, the modernists approach it very differently. Okay? Modernists, modernists actually do it this way. Modernists seek satisfaction through attachment. So I don't know if this is going to work and it's going to look kind of funny, but I'm going to try it. So let's say we got our, we got our people bag. All right. So moderns will say, instead of detaching, because that sounds really depressing, let's attach these things to us. And let's walk around life with our people close to us, this is going to get awkward in a hurry, at least for me, our accomplishments, I'm going to run out of space on the real estate up here, there we go, our hobbies near us, and our stuff, put my stuff down here, is that pretty well balanced? And so the modern says, rather than detach, bring them close, I mean, just Find your happiness right within it. I mean, that's, that's the best thing to do. Like, keep adding more to your hobbies bag. And as you see this, you know, at, whoop, that actually, there we go. Where did that go? Oh, well. Lost that one. Put that in the people bag, right? Put that in the stuff bag. And I see you got something else you're doing. Now let me join you and put that in the hobby bag. And can you imagine, though, the difficulty? Can you imagine the difficulty of walking through life with all these open bags, you know, with me? Can you imagine walking through school like this? Of course, you'd look like a fool or going to work like this. And, and yet, practically, this is kind of what we will do. It becomes difficult to walk like this when I'm afraid that I'm going to lose my stuff because I can't close my bag. And so I have to be careful how quickly I go because... I don't want to lose my stuff, and so I might need to buy insurance to protect it in case I happen to get jostled. Or what if there's a storm and I can't control it all? Or, you know, what if somebody dies? And then what if also you have bags that are bigger than mine? And what, what if you have some things in your bag that I don't have? See, the, the irony of detachment is that when we detach, it awakens within me a desire to close, oh, close up my heart to the source of greatest joy in this world, and that is people who love me. When I detach, 
I cannot love people and they cannot love me. I can't find joy in the relationships that I have. When I attach, it awakens in my heart an envy that wasn't there before. You, you've got a bigger stuff bag than me? Your stuff with four wheels goes faster than mine? Your stuff that you live under at night is a little bit nicer, a little bit bigger than mine? I'm going to get some more stuff. Put more stuff in my stuff bag. It awakens in me a resentfulness that you get to enjoy this person who's no longer in my life. They're in your life now. They left me, but they're with you. I didn't feel that resent until I attached them so closely to me, and now they're gone. It awakens within me a, a violence. I'm not afraid to hurt you to get what I want. That the attachment holds these things so closely that I must protect the things that I have, and it awakens actually within me this ugly side of my heart that far from actually providing satisfaction awakens an evil within me. It awakens an improper response to the things of this world. These things that are, I'm going to use these words here, these things that are important actually become ultimate. I must protect the things that are around me, and I'm a little jealous of the things that you might have. And our modern approach is simply to add and add and add. And here's how it works for some of us. If I can take these bags off here without losing these things. These little marbles are actually a part of a game at our home, and if I lose any of them, I'm going to be in trouble with my family. Be careful not to do that. There we go. I think that'll be good. But the danger here is that you don't see, and I don't see, that when things don't work right, we still actually continue to try to attach. Here's what I mean by that. If, for example my accomplishment bag isn't filling up the way I want it to. Let's say that's still attached to me here. If I don't get the things that I want, we have a couple responses. Number one, I can just try harder. Try harder. You failed the class, try harder. You didn't get where you wanted to get, try harder. Try harder, try harder, try harder, try harder, try harder. It works when you're younger. At some point when you get older, you're like, I'm done trying harder. I'm never going to accomplish I'm done trying harder, I'm never going to get that person. I'm done trying harder, I'm never going to get to that point. Some people, instead of just trying harder, they also begin to blame themselves. Do you know that storyline? Hey, that person is no longer close to me. It's my fault because I am so insecure. If only I looked better, they wouldn't have dumped me. If only I had a better vision, that wouldn't have happened. If only I don't cry so much, then people would actually like me. And we begin to blame ourselves for our own inadequacies. Some people say, and here's particularly for, for those of us who are younger, I'm saying us, younger, like how I included myself, just voluntarily, no discussion on that. We'll look forward and say, I'm going to plan for a future. I'm going to be planning now for a future where I will have more stuff. And there can be this hope that in five years, in 10 years, in 15, and 20 years, the satisfaction that I want, as long as I keep building, I will get it. And there's this lie that we tell ourselves, and here's the lie, listen, that I will be different. Oh, I know that Solomon couldn't handle the money. He wasn't happy with the money, but let me give it a shot at least. I bet I can be satisfied with a cool million by the time I'm 25. I I bet I can figure out how to buy happiness with that, right? But you can't. You can't. 
But we have this belief that there's a future where it's out there, and so we blindly pursue, we blindly pursue satisfaction by attaching ourselves to these things. We blindly do it. Then, those who are older, I didn't say us, those who are older, (laughs) we can become cynical. We can give up to despair and just say, what's the point? What's the point? We'll never find the happiness that you want at all. Now, there's a Christian teacher and leader and thinker, who, Augustine, who taught us this, that, whoops, sorry, that we are most fundamentally shaped by what we love. There's another way to approach satisfaction. Augustine said you're most fundamentally shaped by what you love. I want you to think back to your week this week, the ways that you engaged your week, the people you talked to, the places you went to, the school you went to, the activities you did. Why did you do the things that you did? Why did you avoid the people that you avoided? Because you loved them, because you wanted to, because you love your hobbies, because you love your work, because you don't love dealing with this issue and you don't love dealing with that, that we are shaped fundamentally by the things that we love. That's just the way that it works. In fact, there was a a lawyer who asked Jesus this question about the greatest commandment. And in Matthew 22, Jesus says this, the greatest commandment is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said this in verse 40 of Matthew 22, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. In other words, all of the law, all of the way the world works, the speed limit, the order that you have in your world, the zoning rules that we have now, all of the law hangs on love, that love shapes the way the world works. The speed limit is a reflection of how to love your neighbor by not speeding at 100 miles an hour through a development where it's posted at 25. It's an unloving thing to do. That the law is what is an expression of love, that our world, everything about our world and the way that we work together is actually hung on this premise that we are to love God and love others, that love is the primary shaper of our hearts, which is why Augustine said it this way, that you are what you love. You are, and I am, what I love. Now, if this is true, here's something I also want you to think about, that our loves in our hearts have an order to them. I love different things differently. There are times when I love to exercise, and there are times when I love to eat whoopie pies. And I am a conflicted person. Right? There's an order to our loves. Which will I love more? You know, I think back to just a few years ago, um, boy, 20-some years ago, Jen, my wife and I, we were not just standing here, but I was actually standing, I think it was probably right up here, and she was over here, and we actually got married in this church, in this space. On, I think, this step, I think the carpet was still this color, which is actually great. Okay. And I promised then to her, I said that I'm going to love you with all that I have. And we exchanged vows and wrote our own vows, and it was great, and um, you know, it was amazing. So I made this promise that I'm going to love my spouse. And what I knew in that moment on May 30th of 1998 is that I'm going to love my spouse, and I'm going to commit to love her. There's an order now to my love that I also love myself. I do love myself, right? I mean, I think you do too. Like, I love to eat when I'm hungry. I, mean, I love to go to sleep when I'm tired. So I respond to my needs, so I love myself in that way. But it doesn't take long in a marriage. For us, I remember it so plainly when our oldest was born, because I loved to sleep, there were times when I would hear our daughter crying and I would pretend to still sleep and like, I hope she hears her before I have to get up. And there would be a disordering of my loves 
where all of a sudden the love myself comes above love my spouse. And what does it result in? It results in a wake up the next morning with a discontent in my heart, with a little bit of an ache, like I actually just betrayed the love that I should have had. Right? You ever feel that way? I mean, we know the right priority here, right? Do I love my family or do I love my work? It doesn't take long for some of us, one day you wake up and you realize I've actually disordered this love. I've loved my work over my family and there's an order of our loves that is important to consider. And when the order of our loves is out of whack, it actually brings a disappointment and a discouragement to us. It's not just that we love, it's how our loves are ordered. Think about this last one for a minute. We know this one is also true that we are supposed to love what God says about my value. Another way to put this is love what God says about how I, let me say, how I look, how I'm perceived, how, how people see me. I'm supposed to love what God says about my value. But there's also this part of it that I do actually love what the world says about my value. If you don't think this is true, then get off social media and see if you care. If you don't think this is true, then post something on Instagram and don't care if anyone likes it or comments on it. Of course we do love what people have to say about us. Of course we're encouraged when people say, man, you look great in that picture. Of course we are. We love that. And we also know this, when these loves are flipped, it creates a kind of dissatisfaction and discontent that just wrecks us. It's just the way that it works that these loves need to be ordered in the right way. And this is why, like this is why, when Tim Keller writes his book, Making Sense of God, which has helped frame up some of this, this is why when we talk about loving and what we love, Keller wrote it this way, he said this, if you love anything more than God, you harm the object of your love, you harm yourself, and you harm the world around you, and you end up deeply dissatisfied and discontent. If you love anything more than God, even for me, my wife who I committed to up here on May 30th of 1998, and I love her more than God, I harm her because I expect her to do for me what only God can do. I expect her to forgive me unconditionally, but only God can do that. I expect her to, to be there and present for me all the time, to emotionally support me, but only God can do that. I expect her to constantly be a source of encouragement and refreshment for me. But only God can do that with an unconditional love. And then I harm myself when she doesn't deliver on that. And she can't and no one can. I begin to get disengaged. I begin to get disenfranchised. I begin to lose hope that people, that people will actually ever love me. And my little favorite things bag begins to get a little hole in it because I don't know if you can provide for me what I hope you can provide for me. I hope you can provide for me value. I hope that I can find satisfaction in the relationship we have, but I'm afraid that you might let me down. I harm the world around me, the people around me who I should be engaging with, I simply can't because I begin to feel this pain and I end up, I end up deeply dissatisfied and discontent because I have disordered my loves. I have loved something more than God. In Psalm 63, the psalmist writes this, he says this, because your love is better than life, I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. 
Because your love is better than life. Because your love is better than all of life. I will find satisfaction. Be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. Here's what, if I can summarize it, here's what I think happens. That the ancients sought satisfaction through detachment. Moderns seek it through attachment. But Christians seek it by loving God more than anything else. Rather than step away from the people and accomplishments and hobbies and stuff bags of our favorite things, as the ancients will say, and rather than attach these things so closely to my heart and to my life that I can't live without them, and it generates a kind of envy and anger when you have more than I have or different than I have, rather than attach like that, Christians say, if you want to find happiness and satisfaction, love God more than anything else, and all of these other things are good, become important, but not ultimate that the love of God amplifies everything else in life. That I can, when I love God so fully that it matters what he cares about more than what, even how my wife treats me or my family or whether my accomplishments, whether I, even this morning, whether I'm communicating with you, I feel like I do a good job or a poor job, regardless of my accomplishments. If my love of God is so much that it carries over top of this, I can come in and deliver to you and walk out. And with a sense of care, I care whether we're communicating and this is working. But it is an ultimate where it's not devastating where it is lost. For my hobbies, and I had questions in the last year or two of whether I would even be able to continue riding bike, for example, have some knee pain I'm dealing with. You begin to feel this loss of, who will I be without this? That in the middle of loss of health and all of these things, that these things get put in perspective to say, yes, it's important, it's good, but it's not ultimate. So it doesn't need to generate envy when someone looks better than me. It doesn't need to generate a resentfulness when you get to have a relationship with someone that I don't have a relationship with anymore. It doesn't need to generate that if, I love, if my love for God is greater than anything else. Then it gets amplified into everything that I do, that I can enjoy the ride, I can enjoy the relationship as a good gift from a Heavenly Father. But it, what is important does not become ultimate. Now here's the question that I have, just to try to drive this down even further. What does it mean to actually love God? Okay. How can I actually encourage you to love God more? Is what I'm asking you to do, to just sit here for a minute, close your eyes, clench your fists, tighten your jaw, clear your mind, and let God love you more and feel the love of his presence? Not exactly. There isn't a way, I don't think, to encourage or to animate the heart toward loving a vague kind of a God. What I want you to think about is I want you to think about the, the intersection of two stories. And one story is how we have failed to love God the way that he designed us to. And the other is his failure to give up on us. So I'll put it this way. What, what, actually, what actually awakens our hearts to love God is coming back to the scene where our failure to love him met his failure to give up on us. If you want to know how do you awaken your heart again to love God more, you don't just love a vague God out there. We only, our, our hearts are only animated to love God when we see what Christ has done for us on the cross in light of what we have done to him. In light of our disobedience, our failures, 
our talking behind each other's backs, our unwillingness to forgive and engage, our unwillingness to love one another, our failures in light of our failure to love God the way that he has made us. When we see that in us and we realize where that takes us and the road that we're on, and then we come into the scene of the accident where our sin and failure crashes into the grace of God, and we see that God loves us even in the middle of our sin, and he shows it by sending his son Christ to die for us. It's in that intersection, revisiting the scene of that accident where we are taken into a different space, and we see the God of love in a fresh and clear way, and our hearts are animated in gratitude that God has reached us, and his failure to give up on us is so stark in light of our failure to love him well. And so I want you to consider not just loving a vague God out there who's in a cloud somewhere playing a harp. No. I want you to think about these two storylines, the scene of this collision of my failure to love and his failure to give up. That awakens and animates the heart to to think and see the goodness of God in the middle of your life, in the middle of mine. To reawaken our gratitude to say, this kind of God would love me so much that he would send his son to die for me in the middle of my sin. His failure to give up on me in light of my failure to love him. Well, this is what animates the heart. This is what moves us to love him well. And so I don't know. I don't know what's in your favorite things bag. I don't know all the things that go in there for you, but I do know we have them. I do know you seek them you're human. I want to tell you with these things that you have and with the things that I have, when the dog bites and when the bee stings and when you're feeling sad, you simply remember that Christ came for you in the middle of your sin and failure. And the gratitude, the gratitude that wells up in our hearts as Christians says, I don't want to detach I don't want to disengage. I want to engage this world of pleasure that will be wrought with pain. But I don't want to attach so closely that they're ultimate to me. They're important, but they're not ultimate. What's ultimate to me is that Christ came to die for my sin. And what a gift to put everything in perspective, that I can love everything well and enjoy the good gifts of this earth that God has given us and find contentment and satisfaction in the work of my hands, the things that I do in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ that he came and revisited, revisit the scene of that collision. That God loves you so much and loves me so much that he met us right there. And so that, that is what Christians believe about how in the world to find meaning, or excuse me, to find satisfaction and contentment and happiness in life. It's a big question that shapes your world and shapes the world of the people around you. Next week, we're going to talk about this question, and that is, why can't I do whatever I want as long as it doesn't hurt anybody? And if you've ever asked that or heard that question asked, I'm looking forward to the conversation next week. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to stop, pause, and come together around these questions around these things that drive us to find satisfaction and happiness and contentment in life. And I pray that you would awaken in us this desire again to see 
and to feel the impact of the grace of your son Jesus meeting us in the middle of our own sin and failure. And I pray that you would help us to be awakened in our hearts to the love for you that that creates, to the gratitude, the thankfulness that that creates. I pray that you would renew us, that you would soften us, even just little by little. For those of us who have begun to detach or have been detaching, who are unsure how to engage people, how to put our stuff in perspective, you'd help us to step into this space of loving well. For those of us who are attached too strongly to the things that we're hoping to do in our futures, to our finances, to our looks, to our careers, things that have become ultimate but should really only be important. I pray that you'd help us to revisit the scene of this collision of your grace with our failures and put everything in perspective in light of your love for us. And so may we be shaped deeply by the love that we have for you and by your love for us. We want to find ourselves in Christ alone. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray.